song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. Boom, as almost always. Yes, indeed, sir. This is one that I have actually been looking forward to a lot. The topic, of course, is Jim Cornette. I think my interaction with him is a little different than yours. You listen to his podcasts podcasts right more than one uh yeah he does one on monday or tuesday and then one on wednesday or thursday i think it's monday and thursday or something like that but yeah he does two podcasts per week you also are more familiar with his work before wwf wwe which is where i know him from i the the camp cornet is my my sleeper pick for best stable ever uh, it is probably my f- like on the short list of my favorites you're more familiar with the nwa version of jim cornet right uh, sure. I suppose at least more so than you. Uh, I mean, we're the same age. So yeah, Camp Cornette was definitely the first time I saw him. And when I was a kid, I was a gigantic fan of both the British Bulldog and Big Van Vader at various points. Uh, go back to the vault for our Vader episode, one of my personal favorites to this day. Uh, so that was my introduction to him, like you. Uh, but when, when I was in college, I uh, kind of stumbled upon the Midnight Express uh, initially uh, the Bobby and Stan version. And, uh, then I actually went on Cornette's website, believe it or not, and got one of his, uh, uh, very nice, but dubiously licensed DVDs. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I got his Midnight Express DVD that had a, a bunch of old matches, both of, uh, Bobby and Dennis and of, uh, Bobby and Stan. And it just excellent. I fell in love. And, and ever since then, the, he's been someone who, I really study both as a talker and as a mind in the business. I, I definitely don't co-sign everything he says or does, much like I don't co-sign everything that anybody other than myself says or does. Actually, I can't even co-sign myself most of the time. Uh, but but he's someone who I, I definitely have a lot of respect for and um, who I think is, is a really special person in the wrestling business, both in terms of, as you said, being the great on-screen character, but also um, uh, being a really important voice, especially... Uh, an important voice representing a viewpoint that has uh, begun to diminish over the last 20 or so years. Uh, if you are here for the Ringer article that I wrote and you found out about us through that, um, what I talked about in the article was the different paths to the WWE, the big platforms in general. And what I think is interesting in particular about Cornette is how he got into the business. It was kind of something you don't really see anymore, especially at the WWE level, but just in general, that's not the way he got in isn't something that's really available to people anymore in a traditional sense. No, no, certainly not. And in fact, I would say that he was really kind of possibly part of the last generation of people to break in that way. I mean, uh, he and Bruce Pritchard and Percy Pringle and um, downtown Bruno, Harvey Whippleman, uh, all to some degree really broke in the same way. And that was by like being a huge fan and going to the matches every week. And, you know, uh, and just kind of starting off as like a low level gopher, like filling up soda cups and selling programs and stuff. And then moving up to being a high level gopher, you know, taking photographs and carrying ring jackets and um, selling eight by tens and stuff like that. And, 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 you know, and then gradually sort of being let in the back door of what was a super duper protected business. But there was a lot of getting strung, strung along and doing menial tasks for no pay first. And that's that's slightly different than, say, what happened with Paul Heyman, who was always kind of a promoter who also worked his way up through photography. But was that was him doing it himself more so than anything else. Like he got ingratiated with the Vince McMahons of the world. But like what Cornette did was actually build himself up into a character on television, essentially, right? Like he literally like started in the, as they say, in the mail room and worked his way up to, if not an executive suite, at least like an important um, role within the company, both uh, starting off in front of the camera, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, working, you know, as a, as a gopher or an errand boy or whatever you want to call it uh, from a, from an early age, you know, he had a lot of exposure to, to the boys, to the wrestlers. And the famous story that he tells is that, that uh, he traveled uh, from Louisville to Memphis to attend a Memphis TV taping because there was a, a big match that he wanted to see. And um, Jerry Jarrett, who uh, was, you know, the, the booker, was in charge of the territory, one of the owners, came over to him and said, you know, I think that, you know, if you can get half as much heat with the fans as you can with the wrestlers in the back, then I think you'd be a great manager. 
So, so that was, it was just one of those old school stories. Once again, that you just don't hear anymore about someone really just being discovered by someone who, who identified raw talent in them and, and knew that it was going to take a lot of mentoring by, by them and other gracious people to whip this person into shape. But it, it's an investment that the wrestling business used to make in people that it, it doesn't seem like exists anymore. And that's kind of the, like you were saying, he has a path to wrestling that just doesn't exist. And there's a real warmth to that path that's kind of missing today, I think. Uh, the heat that he got really helped out him with the Midnight Express, who are most famous, and correct me if I'm wrong, for feuding with the Rock and Roll Express, right? Yeah, so the, the, the Midnight Express really came about uh, as part of a, a talent exchange between Mid-South and Mid-South. <laughs> so the Memphis Territory uh, and, and the Watts Territory, they did kind of a, a, a talent trade in the early 80s. And so uh, Condry, Dennis Condry, lover boy Dennis Condry, uh, beautiful Bobby Eaton, and uh, and and Cornette all got hooked up, uh, I think, by Watts, or it might have been by you know Dundee, who had been a, a booker in both Memphis and uh, Mid South at various times. But they got put together as the Midnights to basically specifically to feud uh, with the Rock and Roll from the beginning. I mean, the Rock and Roll were a super over kind of teeny bopper team. We've talked about that style a little bit in in previous episodes, but they needed just kind of dastardly heels. And I mean, Ricky and uh, Robert were, were good looking guys by the standards of the time. And, you know, uh, <laughs> Dennis and, and Dennis and Bobby looked like Dennis and Bobby, uh, but it really, really worked. The only thing that's really comparable today is, is the revival and the revival are a self-conscious kind of tribute to tag teams like, you know, the, the Midnight Express and Arn and Tully. But yeah, Bobby Eaton is somebody that uh, most people will be more familiar with if you're familiar with either of them at all. Uh, he spent a lot of time in WCW and is considered one of, uh, especially by Stone Cold Steve Austin, one of the great workers of all time. Right? Like I think he's considered like an exceptionally great performer. Yeah, definitely. A, a true genius. I've, I've heard multiple wrestlers um, from Steve Austin is definitely one of them. I've heard Jim Cornette tell very similar stories. But a lot of wrestlers have said that he really was a genius in the sense that, you know, if you asked Bobby uh, he, why he did something, he couldn't explain it to you. Like he was one of the best wrestlers in terms of psychology of his era, but he, he couldn't explain why he did stuff to other people because he just innately knew. He just like knew how to be a heel wrestler. And that's where Jim Cornette comes in, more or less, right? He can actually explain why they're doing the shitty things that they're doing. Oh, exactly. I mean, he he really was, you know, the the Louisville Lip. He was like, you know, the the big talker. He was someone who who he, he, they could bring it together in the ring, but he was the person who made you anticipate the match. You know, the match on paper, you were really excited to see the rock and rolls, but you were also excited to see Cornette get his comeuppance. I mean, that was kind of the you know, what the rock and roll were trying to achieve. They were trying to bring down this like obnoxious guy so that, you know, they could uh, have a fun time with their fans and not be distracted by, by the meanies, so to speak, you know? So he was a, he was a great heat seeker, someone who um, really wanted the audience to hate him once again, in a way that just doesn't exist anymore. Like it's one thing to, um, wow, I hate to call someone out by name in like a disparaging way, <laughs> but I will. Uh, it's one thing to be Corey Graves and like say all the Jesse Ventura, uh, Bobby the Brain stuff that is quote unquote heel material, but it's another thing to make a concerted effort uh, to to get everybody in the building to want to kill you. And, and that really was what Jim Cornette was trying to do, whether it was the backstory of, you know, his rich mama spoiling him by buying him wrestlers, which has its own... Um, implications, especially in the culture of the time. I mean, I guess I'll come out and say it. There was kind of a gay baiting aspect to it, especially because they had the sexy names and he was the mama's boy and stuff. There definitely was a, a tinge of homophobia to at least the early portions of the gimmick. And, and, and that was part of the heat. But I think it, it speaks to the greatness of Cornette that, you know, I mean, we saw uh, Rico and Billy and Chuck do that for what less than a year, and and Jim Cornette had a you know thirty forty year career, so so he turned it into much more than that. It evolved and it it became about finding the thing that the people in that town 
didn't want to hear and saying it as as loudly and as uh, verbosely as articulately as possible because that's the great thing about Cornet. he doesn't just say this town stinks and i hate all of you uh you know he was a guy who who could really put together words much more eloquently than i'm doing right now and uh, that that was really part of the whole act that you know you had Cornette, who built the anticipation for the match, who made you want to see his wrestlers beat up, who made you want to see him get beat up. Because, I mean, a lot of the time on, you know, when you when you go back to these kind of uh, 70s, early 80 tag team matches, you know, there's that great stipulation of, you know, if, if such and such happens, then Ricky Morton gets five minutes alone in the ring with Jim Cornette or whatever. And that used to be something that, that you could really build up if you had, you know, a manager like Jimmy Hart or Jim Cornette who just had tons and tons of just nuclear heat where the idea was that, you know, the wrestlers might've been, you know, respectable to some level because at least you admired their toughness, but someone like, you know, Cornette, who was this kind of pudgy, big mouth mama's boy, you know, he had the tennis racket, which is like the sign of affluence and stuff like that guy didn't have the, the veneer of respectability that even, uh, even the heel wrestlers had by virtue of being athlete. He was just excellent at getting heat, at finding the thing people didn't want to hear, at pointing out the thing people didn't want to see, pointing out at, at, at using the tone and the volume and the speech patterns that people found grating. He was just a master at all of it. He always felt like, at least on, I mean, they actually leaned into this in WWF. He always felt like he was breaking kayfabe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they did those kind of, uh, I, I always think of the Attitude Era things where he would do the, like, shoots on WCW. But who gets a lot of the attention from the wrestling fans especially? Guys like the NWO, the New World Order. You know, all the fans think these guys are so cool and so sweet and so funny. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the NWO is like a bunch of guys meeting out in the backyard in a clubhouse in a tree. They're guys who all they have to, they got the easiest job in the world. All they have to do is go out there and be themselves. Childish, obnoxious, adolescent guys with a case of severe arrested emotional development and a fixation on trying to act macho. You got a guy like Kevin Nash, 40 years old, trying to act like a teenager. As far as I'm concerned, the biggest no talent in the business. He's got six moves, no mobility, and enough timing to come up, cover up for some of it. But what he does is he goes around and he manipulates. Kevin Nash had a multi-million dollar promotional company, the WWF, push him to the moon to make him a star, and then what does he do? He leaves after he gives his word to stay in, so by the way, he's a liar too. He leaves and he goes to WCW for a big contract. And those really did, when he cut those, even those were shoots, it's always impressive looking back that those sound exactly like his worked promos. He doesn't give away, he doesn't give away, it's a shoot brother. It's sudden, it's not suddenly more serious or more quote unquote real than his wrestling promos. The wrestling promos are exactly the same as the shoots because the wrestling promos are real too. He was a really special talker. I, he was a good worker. He, he worked, uh, as they say, uh, like a manager in the ring. Um, but he is, he was exceptional at the, your town stinks because of something you're extremely sensitive about. He had the, uh, the, the old John Mulaney joke. Eighth graders will make fun of you, but in an accurate way. <laughs> they will get to the thing that you don't like about you. They don't even need to look at you for long. They'll just be like, ha, 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 ha. Hey, look at that high-waisted man. He got feminine hips. And I'm like, no, that's the thing I'm sensitive about. And he did that. He's very, he came in with the mentality of a rich kid. Like that he knew better and he was smarter and that he had everything figured out because he was given the opportunity to do so because he had rich parents. Like he, he would come in and it was that dual aspect of, I don't like this guy cause he thinks he's better than me. And I also don't like this guy cause he might just be a little bit smarter and better than I am. And like you said, I think the racket is a really important aspect of the character. That racket is in a lineage of great wrestling uh, props. Bob Orton's cast comes to mind in particular as a thing. Fuji Kane. Yeah, and, and it's something you see, of course, a lot less than you do now, but for, I think, decent reasons that after a while you would assume refs would become aware of that shit. <laughs> Though you do see it in, in moments. Uh, Brass Knucks 
still have a place in our hearts and in wrestling. Uh, they used it during the Miz match. And the Miz actually reminds me a lot of Jim Cornette in the sense of that they're actually talented performers who try to get actual heat. Though I think the Miz for WWE related reasons is like a, a neuter, relatively neutered version of the Jim Cornette character, but that idea that he might actually be good and might actually be as good as he's making himself out to be, if he really wanted to be, is part of the thing that works about The Miz, and it's definitely what worked for Cornette. Yeah, definitely. And it's that pre-match bluster, right? It's that, like, when the heel is either on top or in the position of power or when he's, you know, in a safe place where he can make big claims, he makes the biggest claim. He's all about himself. He's all about how he's great or his guys are great and the opponent is awful and just going to get crushed, right? And then when either he gets beat or, or slips on a banana peel or the, the baby face does something valiant and, and he has to show his ass, then he's flustered. And that's something that Miz and Cornette were both great at is like they talk big before the match or before the encounter with the baby face. And then once the baby face gets the, the better of them, they're like stammering and, and their mouth is hanging open like a fish, you know, that just that great reaction of, of being hoisted by their own petard and, and going from the highest highs to the lowest lows. I think that is a real parallel between the, the two, or at least a, a trait they have in common. And I think that part of that comes from that Miz is really, if you think about it, the last guy to make it in the business completely from the outside and kind of have that be it. That's part of his story is that he started outside and had to bust his ass to get to the top. And I think that's more hidden within the con within Jim Cornette's life. But I, I think that's part of the reason why the Miz has a similar mentality. It's this idea that I have to be the best at this particular aspect because not that I'm deficient, but that's what got me here is being this kind of asshole and camp Cornette. I, we could do, we will do an entire episode on Camp Cornette, so I don't want to spend too much time on Camp Cornette. But to me, Camp Cornette represented both this idea of the what could at the time was the modern incarnation of the the heel manager stable, which was much more common in the '80s. And basically, what you would have you would have Bobby Heenan or whoever Slick, whoever they had a roster of performers, and the big thing was switching using the manager as a conduit through which to feud with the best or the most powerful baby face Nick, and Nick, I, Nick, I, Nick, Nick. did you just say that the heel monster stable wasn't wasn't common in the mid-90s sullivan my son <laughs> as you were as you were sorry uh, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. It was not nearly as effective. There we go. There we the go. There we go. I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm really excited for the follow-up files uh, link. Oh my god, the fucking Legends <laughs> of the Hidden Temple set. Best best promo shoot ever. <laughs> uh, we will also be doing an episode on the Dungeon of Doom. But no, Camp Cornette really for me was a thing that made me worried about the baby faces. And that's what Cornette did throughout his entire career is he was just skilled enough and just wily enough that you felt like he could get away with things in a way that would cause the people you like to lose. And that's a really, really, really hard thing to pull off unless you're actually working the match. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think... Uh... Yeah, I'm going to go out of limb on and say it, actually, because Bobby Heenan was a wrestler. I think that Jim Cornette is the best non-wrestler in the history of wrestling. Um, and, and and maybe that's overstatement because, I mean, Vince McMahon is not a wrestler, even though he has had wrestling matches. But, but He's a WWF champion. He's a wrestler. Yeah, true. There we go. There we go. I guess the, for, for the, the best on-screen... Well, no, because Vince is a... God damn it, Vince. Vince does everything. But no, I, I guess I'll stand by my original statement. I'll stop qualifying. I would say that, yeah, Cornette really is is the best non-wrestler in the history of the business because Heenan was a wrestler first. And I mean, you know, I, I don't think, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think there's anybody who could as believably impact a match, whether it was grabbing the ankle, whether it was passing in the racket, whether it was distracting the ref, whether it was accidentally distracting his own team so that they could, you know, so that the other, so the faces could slip over, you know, like he, he, was believably part of 
almost any finish that you could do, I guess, you know, he, he created so many different scenarios whereby either his team could win or his team could lose. And once again, the advantage of, of inviting someone who's not the wrestler is you can keep all the wrestlers whole. And yeah, I guess the, 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 the famous example of that, that I can think of off the top of my head was um, there was a match where I think it was the, uh, the road warriors were leaving the NWA and they were doing a match with the Midnights, and it was one of those deals where kind of nobody wanted to beat each other. Like, it didn't make sense for either team to lose because the Road Warriors were the Road Warriors, and they, you know, they had to keep what they had to go to the next place. And, and the Midnights were so important to kind of, you know, making all the baby faces look good. And so the Road Warriors, you know, didn't want to beat them up on their way out of the door because it didn't make sense. So so they did a deal where the pin involved Cornette and Ellering. It was like they did, you know, a during the, the big fired up comeback, there's all this misdirection. Suddenly both managers are in the ring and I think it was Cornette pinned Ellering. I think that was the finish. Maybe it's the other way around, but I think it was Cornette pinned Ellering or maybe it was Ellering pinned Cornette so they wouldn't hurt the Midnights on the way out. Maybe that was it. But anyway, that's just a great example of, you know, number one, what a really super valuable tool the manager can be. Like that story is a little hokey. Like people on the forums would be complaining about that or people on Twitter would be complaining about that immediately after the show. You know what I mean? But it, it gives you an out. But but most importantly, like I said, it, it keeps you from beating the wrestlers. And if you watch WWE today, you you have a pretty good idea what happens when they beat the wrestlers all the time. I think what modern wrestling fails to appreciate is that wins and losses do actually count for the people watching. Whether or not they actually care long term if somebody lost six months ago is a different story than the idea that like if you have you have to make decisions when you're using the kind of booking the manager free booking that modern wrestling or at least modern wwe uses uh so you have distraction finishes you have count outs you have disqualifications you have all of these ways and you have 50 50 booking you have all of these ways to get around the idea that somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. And what a guy like Cornette did and a guy and through the lineage of Heenan and all of those people is gave somebody, gave them the fans, somebody to have lose. And that is, I think the lost art of managing in a way that like Paul Heyman is probably the most quote unquote successful manager of all time. But he's not the best manager, at least to me, because there's like one feud I can think of where the end goal was to get him in the ring to get his ass kicked. And it was CM Punk. And it was okay. But like that, you don't pay, you pay to see Paul Heyman like get roughed up. You don't pay to see him get his ass kicked. And you paid to see guys like Bobby the Brain Heenan and Jim Cornette get their asses kicked. Oh yeah, definitely. And and one of the examples that I actually think of him getting in the ring is I think he did like, I'm not sure if it was just like Street Fighter, if it was like one of those tuxedo match gimmicks, but I mean, he did a, a match with Cornette at one point, actually, the two of them in the ring. And it's another one, like I said, I think it's sort of the, even Cornette would joke, it's like the one time that he had to carry the other guy kind of thing. You know what I mean? That that the, the, the knock on Heyman, whether it's from the dirt sheets or whether from it's what I've heard other wrestlers say is that, that Heyman really wasn't great at bumping. Um, and Cornette was great at talking and bumping. Like Heyman's a 10 out of 10 on the verbiage and like a one out of 10 on the physicality. And Cornette's up there at a nine or 10 of the verbiage, but also like a, I mean, for a non-wrestler, like an eight or a nine in the, in the physicality department himself. I mean, you know, he, he was someone out there kind of, taking taking real bumps i mean he he wrestled like a manager quote unquote in that you know he kind of flailed and flopped and 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 didn't go down like the wrestlers went down um but he did so in kind of a professional safe practiced manner you know he wasn't just the non-wrestler who like crumples when the person bumps into them or whatever yeah see vince mcmahon taking his first stone cold stunner like you can actually see the development of vince mcmahon as a as a worker but like I think they, they they are both active outside the ring. Like, I think Paul Heyman does a good job with the physicality of the outside the ring performance, but nobody wants to see that dude. And it's understandable. He's pretty, he's getting pretty up there in age, but like no one ever wanted to see Paul Heyman take a bump. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's what separates that kind of manager from the modern incarnation of the advocate. 
Like uh, Selena, Selena Vega is amazing, but she can only take bumps against female performers the way that the WWE works. So the comeuppance, and it's the same thing with Stephanie, to be honest, is that, and that's changed a lot. Thankfully, thankfully they have figured out a way to integrate in, in, um, uh, women performers in a way that allows female heel managers or female heel authority figures to actually get their come up in. So that's a plus, but I, I think, and I think in a large way that the, the authority figure has really unfortunately replaced the heel manager. Vince McMahon decided that, you know, because there was a uh, grand wizard Ernie Roth and because there was Lou Albano and because there was uh, Blassie and because there was Arnold Skoll. And I think that, you know, he thought that those guys were barnacles on his dad or that that's kind of been one of the, the narratives that's been out there that he kind of thought that those guys who were all minority partners or part owners in the company have been around forever. You know, they were so important to the show, but I think that the, the story is always, you know, that Vince Jr. Thought that they were overemphasized that really the wrestlers are the stars and the promotion, the, the folks who are throwing the show, the show itself is the star, so to speak. And I think when when he took over, we saw that kind of slow transition. But by the Attitude Era, when he's an on-screen character, absolutely. All that kind of, you know, non-wrestler heat that the managers used to get, you know, he was putting that on himself. So it's almost like he was saying, no, 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 managers aren't important. They're just barnacles on the show. They're just dead weight. Really, it's all about the wrestlers. And really, it's all about the wrestling promoter. The um, the nepotism of wrestling is something we've talked about in previous episodes, but I think it's the same idea you used to have, which is what you put your championship, or in this case, you put the heel authority figure role on your kids. Like you put the authority, like there's a reason Stephanie and Shane are involved or were involved for much of the last 10 years in the authority figure role. Well, Stephanie last 10 years, Shane, I guess the last four or however long he's been back. They played a major role in the idea of an authority figure because they're not necessarily, at least in the case of Stephanie, definitely going to leave the company. And the same thing with Triple H. Like those people are not going to leave the company in a way that Paul Heyman might. Paul Heyman might leave tomorrow. We don't know because he's not, they don't, they don't need to worry about keeping talent in the way that they would. But that's what managers used to do. And I feel like Cornette, the guys in Camp Cornette were long-standing, mostly long-standing WWE performers. Or in the instance of Yokozuna, he was the secondary manager. And in, in the instance of Vader, that was the one real, like, that stuck out to me in terms of this is a person I am advocating for as both an old school manager and as the more modern, what would eventually become the more modern advocate role. Yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, I think of him a lot, like I said at the beginning of the show, I think of him a lot with Bulldog. And I think that was a great example of somebody at the time who maybe needed a little help doing the promo, but could definitely take care of it in the ring. I mean, if you look at like Bulldog's feud with Shawn Michaels, you know, the, the, that in your house match is just like off the charts. So I think that he was uh, an advocate for Bulldog, but unfortunately I think for, for various reasons that just couldn't last, you know, all sorts of the political stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you mean the mid nineties in WWF? You could, you could. Yeah. 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 I mean that whole like Shawn Michaels thing. <laughs> oh, Shawn Michaels in the mid nineties. <laughs> uh, and I think in general, he represents the transition between the old school wrestling or wrestling style and modern sports entertainment. And and he was kind of that backstage, right? Because he transitions more or less, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, from a manager on screen performer to more like working backstage on the booking committee, right? Yeah, yeah. So the way the way Bruce Pritchard tells the story or has told the story on his podcast over the last couple of years, um, it, it, it's that they they brought Cornette in to manage Yoko because they, they needed more verbally than they were getting from Fuji. And basically he was doing it. Um, well, he was doing it because he loved wrestling and he wanted to be at the top tier of wrestling. But, but I mean, he, he was from a business purpose, probably mostly doing it in order to help fund Smoky Mountain and it, which was his promotion uh, and to, uh, to, to kind of forge a relationship between the WWF and Smoky Mountain, which ultimately led to some pretty successful talent hunting and exchanges, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but so he came in originally to do Yoko and uh, the way Bruce Pritchard tells the story, it's kind of like from day one, he was 
he was coaxing him constantly closer and closer to doing creative as, as much as, you know, Cornette didn't want to do creative for Vince McMahon. He eventually wound up being one of the principal guys doing creative for Vince McMahon. But I think he was, he was there as you allude to professionally to be the wrestling guy, to be the voice of the wrestling industry that had been all but throttled by that point that, that he really was brought on to kind of be the voice of that, which almost didn't exist anymore. Yeah. There's, a real difference between the world that Jim Cornette came up in and what Vince McMahon did in terms of wrestling. I'm not going to sit here and be like, what Vince McMahon did is actually sports entertainment, but it is definitely, it's wrestling to me, but it's not wrestling. And I, I think he, Vince McMahon actively pushed away from wrestling as a concept. And in a way, and to somewhat to his detriment, uh, especially backstage, working backstage, that's what Jim Cornette is. He is wrestling personified. Oh, definitely. I mean, he he is just the kind of the voice of the old school, straightforward, logical type wrestling where, you know, the, the stories weren't super grandiose or super large scale, uh, but they were very intimate and very satisfying. And I, and I think... What he saw in the WWE was the exact opposite, a thing where the kind of scale and the scope and the pageantry was off the charts, but that real emotional resonance was missing. And I, I think he probably had a very hard go of it because, I mean, part of his job was literally to find good workers to be gimmick job guys. So, like, here's Tony Anthony, who's been, you know, one of the grapplers, who's been Smoky Mountain champion as the Dirty White Boy, and he's going to be T.L. Hopper, the wrestling jobber plumber on WWE TV, you know, or, uh, or, or Tracy Smothers finding Tracy Smothers to be a jobber. You know, here's a guy who's, who's one of the more kind of respected Southern acts, but once again, is, is a, is a young master of a style that no longer exists. So I think during his tenure at the WWE, Jim Cornette was, was doing a lot of great, meaningful work that was really important to the company. But I think he was also kind of breaking his own heart as he did it. And and certainly by the time he goes to start OVW, I mean, I think the burnout factor had to have been just off the friggin' charts. Because, I mean, it, it, it wasn't the thing that he had loved anymore. And he had always kind of gotten tricked into being there in the first place, you know? There's a real, like, I don't want to say sadness because he was working. But there is a real, like, the mid-90s. A lot, the death of WCW was the death of wrestling as like a major concept in professional wrestling. Like I think independent wrestling, and Jim Cornette will agree with me, is a fundamentally different. That is what is juxtaposed with the sports entertainment, the WWE style, not the old school wrestling. And, and this period, more so than anything else, is what kills it because, and this is important, this is the first time sports entertainment actually was good. Seems like a strong word, but it was the first time that the talent at the top of the card matched the grandioseness of the ideas involved at the top of the card. Does that make sense? Where like you had actual top level performers at the top of the card doing WWE styled or at this time, WWF style storylines. You didn't have Hulk Hogan, even your big guys were guys like Kevin Nash who can kind of work and looks great having people wrestle him and, or the undertaker who at the time was working his way into being one of the best workers in the company. And then you had guys like Shawn Michaels, you had guys like the British bulldog, you had guys like a young triple H, you had all of these people who were extremely talented performers that were working their way through the system and up to the top. So it's this thing where it's kind of like, yeah, it actually reminds me in a weird way of like Marvel movies and superhero movies becoming what are the type of movies that get made because you add actual good actors in them playing the parts that made sense for them to play. And it ruined anything else anybody else wanted to see because you were like, oh, there's good actors doing this thing that is easy for me to digest. And that along with the death of WCW is what really killed 
and that was outside of Cornette's power, but this kind of was, this is not under his control, but like he played a role in the death of the thing he loved in a very direct way. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I bet he's, he's had some sleepless nights or some, some nights where he had trouble falling asleep, uh, uh, reflecting on exactly that point. But, but I think to his credit, you know, he, He's dug his fingernails deep in the ground and no matter how tight they squeeze his ankles and try to drag him away, like he's, he's still there. You know what I mean? Whether it was trying to cultivate the new generation of talent in OVW or whether it was trying to be the voice of reason and organization in TNA for so many years. I mean, there, there's something really respectable about his dug inness, And I know that's kind of crazy for me to say because Cornette is a polarizing figure. That's one thing we kind of have not brought up at all in this talk is that he's a super polarizing figure. Some people really strongly. Well, he's an asshole. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's ex- the things that made him a great manager. Also uh, th- the things that made him a great heel manager also make him a difficult human being for strangers to like. That's why he was a good heel manager because he's super confident and he says things that most people wouldn't say. And if you don't agree with him, fuck you. Cause you're stupid. You know, it's the same stuff that made him a great heel manager make him tough for a lot of people to digest, I think. What's weird about him is that he's also super liberal, uh, super liberal, like that Kentucky Democrat, like non-racist Kentucky Democrat that like actually thinks that the other guys are assholes in the way that Republicans think Democrats are assholes, but is on the side, that side. It's a very weird dynamic. You can see why he would piss people off. Yeah, as a, as a leftist who lives in a non-left-leaning setting myself, I, I again, I, I, I do have great respect for that aspect of his character, that, that he is so outspoken about his beliefs. And, uh, you know, he's, he's someone who people find him grating because he's always shouting. But I think really his perspective is like, I've got to shout these things because nobody's saying them at a reasonable volume. You know what I mean? That he's... He's very steadfast and he... He's not contrarian and I think that's the important thing, but he exists, his existence is contrarian. He himself is not necessarily a contrarian, but he's holding a lot, he's an incredibly progressive person who has very traditional beliefs in wrestling, for instance. I think also too, like I've said in the past when we did the Dirt Sheets episode, like uh, I used to be a Torch subscriber and I, I was talking specifically about Wade Keller of whom I'm a big fan, so this is not slight. Uh, but, but after subscribing to the Torch for a couple of years, it's like you can pretty much know what Wade's take on something is going to be and, and, and what examples he's going to cite and what his rationale is going to be. With Cornette, I'm always intrigued and I'm always impressed when he has a t- – I shouldn't say I'm always impressed – but I'm impressed frequently, whether it's sort of current issues, either in the wrestling business or out of the wrestling business, or, or whether it's perspective on history. He is not someone, in spite of his traditional beliefs, as you say, he is not someone who views everything through one lens and everything has to kind of fall into alignment with this one cohesive vision. He's definitely someone who I think actually considers issues and considers people like one at a time. And I think that he's actually someone who does research and forms opinions. And he's not just dug in because he wants to argue. He's dug in because he's actually much more informed than most of the people he is arguing with most of the time. Yeah. And that's what I mean by he's not a contrarian in the traditional sense of like everything you say, I'm going to think you're wrong and tell you to go fuck yourself. He is contrarian in the sense that he exists in a space where people, he comes from a background where people like him don't end up like him. And I think that as someone who also grew up in an area that is not particularly left-leaning and was very left-leaning, that idea is very resonant with me. So I think like as a person, Cornette holds a special place in my heart. But as a wrestling traditionalist, I think he's someone with, I don't know how to put this. He doesn't see the forest from the trees on things. I'm trying to... Does that make sense? Like, he feels like with, with the Sami Zayn... Uh, the Sami Zayn, sorry. The, he does not like Sami Zayn. <laughs> that is what the El Generico, No, but the El Generico-Kevin Steen relationship. So with Sami Zayn, they actually have very similar politics. They probably approach 
different things in very particular ways that's why they don't get along they're kind of like the same the same magnetic pole trying to attract itself like it doesn't work you're going to be repelled and i think that's part of what is his problem is that he's so steadfastly who he is people people are bothered by it what what really impresses me i think a great example is like yes i see how Steen and Generico, there we go, uh, uh, Zane and Owens, I, uh, I, I definitely understand that people like those guys and that they're really, really good wrestlers. And so when this guy, this older guy, is, is saying that, that they weren't good employees, like on one hand, like I understand why people reactionarily are like, oh, well, don't tell me that. Don't, don't tell me that the wrestlers I love were, were hard to deal with when you were the boss or whatever. But like the thing where I give him a lot of credit is that anytime he talks about Steen and Generico, he always says like, well, I didn't get along with them. I had a hard time with them. I thought that everything they did was wrong, but they've both made it and they're making a ton of money and I couldn't be happier for the boys than when they're making money kind of thing. So like, I that's the aspect of him that I like. And I think that's, once again, that speaks to that old school, like 1970s, early 1980s, pro wrestling attitude where it was like, Jesus Christ, I fucking hate you. But if you're one of the boys and you're making money and you're getting over on the office, then, then two thumbs up. So, so, so I admire that quality. <laughs> yeah. If, if, the, if the other motherfuckers in the WWE want to deal with this shit, God bless you. <laughs> exactly. That's always, he always says too, like, well, I hope that maybe, hopefully he has a better attitude now than he does when I was managing him. Like he'll say stuff like that, which is very backhanded. But like I said, at the end of the day, he, he says, he says, well, they're making the money now, so what am I going to say, you know? And I think that's a really interesting distinction, and there's a bunch of, we, a, a full, we will do a full episode on Camp Cornette. I think we could do a full episode on the dichotomy between Cornette and Russo, because Russo, and I say this as somebody um, from the area, is the most New York motherfucker in history. He is so New York, I think I know better because I think I know better. Where, like, Cornette has that, like, like I said, that very, like, Louisville Democrat idea where it was like, no, I had to bust my ass to live in this area and turn out the way I did mentally. Like, constantly thinking about things, engaging with things, growing as a person in the, in that way, like where you're challenging every time you say something or, or feel something it's challenged by the people around you. We're like Vince Russo is just a dude from New York. <laughs> well, I, I think that as you say, Vince Russo is, is the guy from New York and, and, and Jim Cornette does have, I won't say he has great disdain for Northerners, but he has great disdain for Northern supremacy um, in that way that people from the Northeast, you know, look down on people from the South and think that Southerners are dumb and think that because the North won the Civil War, that means that we are culturally superior to the South or whatever. You know what I mean? That, that, that he definitely resents the hell out of that. And I think that from the moment he met Vince Russo, he felt that he had met the embodiment of all that. Vince Russo grew up the next town over from where I live right now. He is, he's not even just a New York motherfucker. He is the most Long Island person I've ever seen in popular entertainment. He, we are assholes. We are total douchebags. And he is just, Vince Russo thinks he knows better and thinks you're wrong even if you wrote the book that you're arguing about. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that he is, it's, it's the confidence. It's not just being wrong. It's being wrong and being so confident about <laughs> it. that You're completely closed minded about the right point of view. <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm not saying that in their arguments, Rousseau was always wrong and Cornette was always right. Although I no, And I think that's an important distinction. It's that Cornette can actually go, you know what? I didn't get along with those guys, but those guys did the job. They're they're getting paid. God bless them. Vince Russo would say that they like tricked people. You know what I'm saying? He would build this narrative why he wasn't wrong about them and why anybody else that thinks they're good is a total fucking idiot. I, I hate to bring him up, 
but he it's very trumpian which makes trump from queens it makes sense that like the idea that cor- the cornet's mortal enemy would be vince russo like they not just from the sense that vince russo thinks that wrestling is bullshit and people watch professional wrestling for the professional acting part like it's this idea that there is something wrong and this is our our theme of our show that there's something wrong with the way things were done that can't be fixed by doing them better and Cornette believes very strongly in the 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 core fun- fundamentals of wrestling never changing and Vince Russo doesn't believe that those core fundamentals ever existed that each individual moment is devoid of context from previous moments. Yeah, and we've talked about them being, you know, geographically and culturally very different, but it, it, it's it's so interesting that they're almost the exact same age. Like when you talk about their different approaches, kind of Cornette as the more continuity-based, logical, realistic mind, and, uh, you know, Russo as the quote-unquote crash TV model, you would think that they were way different ages, but they're, they're almost exactly the same age, which is just completely wild to me. But it's like, both of them were in their early 20s and kind of the MTV era of the early to mid 80s. And like, it's just interesting that, that you know, from there we have Cornette, who's, who even though he was kind of into all that cutting edge stuff in the 80s, he's still very much rooted in that kind of continuity system uh, that governed entertainment from basically the birth of television until the birth of MTV. Whereas Russo kind of jumped entirely on the cut, 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 you know what I mean, a music video style or MTV news style presentation. So even though they're the same age, there's almost this like generation gap between them and the way they approach narrative entertainment. Part of that is the fact that in earnest, Vince Russo started about 10 years after Jim Cornette in the business. So I think what Cornette saw, what he had, not an arrested development, but his idea of entertainment when he entered the business was much earlier than what Vince Vince Russo wanted to do what was popular now Jim Cornette wants to do what is long lasting you, you you mentioned Petticoat Junction and you mentioned Gilligan's Island those are shows especially Gilligan's Island that people still know and still are aware of where I think if you look at that 80s era you have shows like Cheers and maybe a couple of other shows from the 80s that had have real staying power in the way that Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch and these previous generations of stories have there's just not as much emotional resonance beyond that actual like nostalgia hit that I feel like you have from Gilligan's Island as a television show where it was a an idea that fun a foundational idea in the history of television as a storytelling medium where I think with the MTV generation that Vince Russo kind of not grew up in, but like really adhered to and really like focused on there's this idea that, like I said, that what happened in the past doesn't matter that you're constantly moving forward and destroying what came before you. And it's not even a progressive idea. It's almost reactive to the, to the past. It is, reactive to what happened before in a way that is inherently contrarian as an idea as opposed to Cornette who's contrarian as whose existence is a contrarian existence it's a philosophy of things work the way that they're supposed to but like certain things you can mix and match and you can develop new ideas where Russo is like all of the ideas that came before this suck we have to do everything different going forward. Yeah, it's it's like Jim Cornette's philosophy is question everything you're told, but Vince Russo's philosophy is disregard everything you're told. What we didn't get across in this episode, and, and even with the, the, the drops that we have in the episode, is what Cornette looks like when he's being Cornette. I think that's a special thing. So uh, do you have any particular... Uh, videos or or matches that we should see if we want to understand as in in a, a edible form what was so great about Jim Cornette? Well, if you're looking for a match, I guess the match I would point you to that, that I always really think of, and it, it's not even like a big long epic match or anything like that, but 
Clash of Champions 1 is a pretty perfect little show. And um, they did 10 minutes with the Fantastics, kind of that, you know, definitive teeny bopper, high flyer, uh, high energy team versus, you know, the Midnights versus the Heels who are going to control them. And I mean, Bobby and Stan weren't necessarily the grindiest version of the Midnight Express. They were kind of the flashiest version of the Midnight Express. But when they were in there with wrestlers who actually were flashy, they, they, they were so perfect to kind of matching them in a way that always made the baby faces look better. And that's what the heels are always about. And, and Jim Cornette's performance in the corner of that match uh, is, is, is really, really uh, fantastic as well. So check out clash one. In fact, watch the whole darn show, probably the best wrestling show ever. Uh, that's a whole separate episode that we can talk about at some point. But um, one thing we didn't talk about in this episode is, is Jim Cornette as a baby face. I mean, maybe we baby faced him in comparison to Vince Russo, um, but but his talent really shone through, and, and, and in the late 80s, in 89, they had their little babyface run against the original Midnight Express, uh, managed by Polly Dangerously. But they, they did a, a famous angle for that match, uh, which you can find on YouTube. Um, I think the name of the video is just called Midnight Express Jumped by Original Midnight Express. Hopefully it won't get taken down now that I've said it on the podcast. Uh, but if you look up that video, you'll see the angle that they did to, to get into the feud, which involved Jim Cornette wearing a white suit. And, and as will happen when a wrestler wears a white suit, it winds up getting just absolutely covered in blood. But, uh, you know, the, the, the famous story, once again, that he tells is that Dusty Rhodes, the booker, told him, you know, for this angle, it's, it's really important that, that we get this over. It's super personal. I want you to go out there and get a little bit of color. And then uh, after the, the segment where Cornette uh, gets to the back, Dusty immediately pulls him inside and said, I said a little bit. <laughs> um, so, so check out that beatdown of, of like Cornette. A, like a fucking stuck pig. It is oh, he, ridiculous. He bleeds and he just does the like flopping, flailing arms. And then he originally transitions, of course, into, you know, the, the we're going to get you a studio promo and stuff. So... I, I definitely recommend uh, seeing the the angle uh, and the, uh, the 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 promo that that Jim Cornette shot. That I don't think aired till the next week, but he still had the blood on his face and stuff when they did it. But but it's a, it's a rare shot of him as a baby face, and it it really gives you a sense of like what I said at the beginning. Even though he wasn't really an athlete, he he really was. A physical talent. He had a physical talent. Yeah, a real in ring performer in a way that most non wrestlers just aren't. Me being me, uh, the my choice is the Shawn Michaels Vader match from SummerSlam '96. Uh, specifically, if you can, the promo which we've actually used in the Vader episode before the match is as good, and I love that match. is as good as the match itself. It perfectly encapsulates the value that Jim Cornette had to the WWF at that moment. Uh, as a spokesperson for a monster heel, but also as a guy that knew how to get over the talent on the other side of the ring. It's he's, I, I love Jim Cornette. Uh, and I think that's like the pinnacle of camp Cornette is that match, but in particular the promo beforehand, it's, it's just, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's brilliant. It doesn't, it's a short one. It's real quick. I think it's literally like 30 seconds, but it's, it's him in a nutshell. It's him encapsulate. It's a microcosm of him as a as a performer, uh, and I, I love it. I love that match. It's totally worth your time, but specifically that promo beforehand. So, uh, did you have any plugs this week? Oh, you know I got plugs, Nick. I'm Mister Plug over here. Uh, as usual, of course, follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk, especially if you're a new listener. Also, make sure you follow at HWETWPod, too. That's kind of the uh, the brand account. Uh, we are we don't have as many followers on that account nearly as we do listeners. So let's beef that one up so you're getting the official uh, communications. Also, be sure to check things out over at the Wrestling Estate, the uh, the website with which I am associated. In our most recent roundtable, we did a little uh, fantasy mock draft since it's that time of year. And each of us had to pick a Raw performer, a SmackDown performer, an NXT performer, an ROH performer, an MLW performer, a New Japan performer. So it, you really saw kind of a you're going to see a great variety of perspectives on, you know, uh, what makes someone uh, really, really interesting? What makes someone great? And you'll also maybe, uh, you can uh, hit me up on Twitter and tell me if you think that my promotion would be better than the other people's. <laughs> it definitely will be. <laughs>
Also, while we're on the topics of plugs, I just want to remind everybody that uh, last week over at patreon.com slash HWETW, uh, we had that free follow-up files for our previous episode, the Enron episode. So if you're looking for um, some more notes for that, some follow-up material, some texts, some audio, some videos, some pictures, uh, definitely check those out. They're still up and available for anybody to download or view for free at patreon.com slash HWETW. This week, I'm not going to hard sell you. You know, I'm not going to ask you for your money. This week, though, I want to give you something a little different. Last week, it was the free content. This week, it's really, it's something much bigger than that, Nick, that I'm, that I'm giving the people here. I, I want all of you out there listening to put your hand on your device. If you're listening to this on your phone, go ahead and touch that phone. Lay your hand on that cell phone. Reach out and touch your car stereo. Put the palms on the computer, whatever device it is, you gotta reach out and touch it so that my energy can be transported and fill you up with goodness. Nick, are you ready? Are you touching your device? I tried it, but the monitor moved. It makes me uncomfortable. Is it okay if I just hover my hand over the, do I have to touch? Well, I can't make any promises about the efficacy if you're not listening to me. Are you ready? Yes. Through the power of this electronic device and the power vested in me by patreon.com slash HWETW, I transmit to all of you the energy of our high-minded banter. Feel the magic of how wrestling explains, coursing through your veins and into your very hearts. Know the wisdom of our ringside witticism and allow it to become your guiding light. Brothers and sisters, with this energy inside of you like so much Holy Ghost, you have the power to walk alongside Brother Nick and myself and become evangelists for the cause. Because truly, our strength is in you. Our power is in you. Our future lies within you. So on this week in which you have been imbued with the transformative power of HWETW, I ask you just one thing in return. Look deep inside your soul and think of your three finest, most intelligent, sexiest friends who like wrestling or maybe just manic pseudo-intellectual weirdness. I want you to reach out to those three friends and I want you to recommend how wrestling explains the world to them. Let them know how it makes you think. Let them know how it makes you feel. Let them know how it makes you love. And let them know how easy it is to find through a podcast app or their social media channel of choice. Brothers and sisters, Daddies and mommies have cats and squares with the power of HWETW stoking the flames of your very soul. You must educate the masses. Search your heart for those three friends who would benefit most from this message. Go forth and multiply through podcast recommendation. Oh, and before I forget, uh, which is weird because it's my favorite part of the show, next week's topic will be, and this one's a pretty easy one to understand why we picked it, is the uh, the concept or the trope, I guess, maybe the genre, I'd go as far to say, of slob versus snobs movies. Pretty famous. We've all seen one. It was kind of the main idea behind most comedies in the 80s, which I think works for Jim Cornette in particular. It's a very reminiscent part of a certain era that is very far away from where we are now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in some ways, one of the big complaints about Jim Cornette is that he is an anachronism. And as much as you can still watch, you know, Caddyshack, the tagline of which is, it's the snobs against the slobs. If you watch that movie, it's still very funny, but you can tell that uh, the people who made that movie came from a very different time and place and concept of what was funny than we do. <laughs> and you can check me out at The Nixer, that's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. Uh, you can also check out my article, if you haven't already, at The Ringer. Uh, that was a couple of weeks ago. I mentioned I might have something exciting to announce. That was it. Uh, I, I worked with uh, one David Shoemaker to write a little uh, article, profile, if you will, about the folks at New York Wrestling Connection, who I was uh, lucky enough to spend the day with. Uh I really enjoyed the people that I got to talk to. Um, I, I don't think my writing's that great, but I think the story itself is great, uh, in part because of the editors I had helped with. Yeah, so I guess check it out. I, I obviously uh, am bad at selling 
myself, so I'm going to go on to the part where I talk about checking out the YouTube channel, uh, which we have an episode for Enron that I, I think we did a pretty great job with. Um, and don't forget to, as Dave said, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and I think that's it. Let me do it's all the good ones. Anybody else, fuck you. I mean, if you're not using one of those. No, that's not true. Pocket Cast. Pocket Cast gets a lot of downloads. God bless Pocket Cast. Um, yeah, and uh, and like I said, rate, review, and subscribe to us there if you like what we did. And if you don't, um, I, I guess go fuck yourself. Does that, does that work? <laughs> What's the Jim Cornette line? Thank you. Fuck you. Bye. Well, let me tell you something. You see, Starcade 87 Dusty Rhodes started flirting with the idea of retirement. Well, that gave my mother an inspiration, and she gave me an order, and that is that the Cornette family name, revered though it is, can go down in history, best of all, by being the man who managed one of the men who put Dusty Rhodes out of the business, brother. And Dusty Rhodes, I know you, and I know that you would have never thought about retirement if you didn't have it in the back of your mind that you may be slipping just a little bit. You see, I'm going to state some plain facts. First of all, Dusty Rhodes, I think what you are is a big, ugly, low-class, redneck goose. That's what I think you are. But you've been the world heavyweight champion three different times. You are the United States heavyweight champion. Every kind of title there is to be held, you've had it. And for the past 16 years, every time there was a big match, every time there was some big money made, every time there was somebody anywhere in the world talking about professional wrestling, they were talking about Dusty Rhodes. He was right there. You've been the big deal for 16 years. But you see, let me tell you something, Dusty Rhodes. Muhammad Ali was the greatest for a long time. He was from Louisville, Kentucky, just like me. But you see, he thought he was the greatest about two or three fights longer than he actually was. And his brain's cottage cheese now, and he's talking like an idiot. And that's the same thing that can happen to you, Dusty Rhodes. Look at yourself in a mirror, you idiot. Look at yourself in a full-length mirror. Your knees are busted up. Your face is scarred. Your back hurts. It takes you an hour to go to sleep at night and a whole lot longer to get up in the morning. You are on the downhill slide, brother. You have seen your better days. And I know and I can feel in my heart that you're ready to be taken somebody's going to do it and one of the men that jim gordon manages is going to be the guy to take you out here among the poor side despicable oppressive misinformed must be for you to bite your tongue secure